0: Spurs are top of the league. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual... We'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week we've once again got a full house. That means leading the line around the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke?
2: Yeah, really good, thanks, Dan. The football's been good, apart from obviously, you know, the little bit of a dull international break. But thankfully, we've come back with a bang from that. So looking forward to discussing it all with you guys uh, today, mate. Yep,
0: yeah, we're in the clear. No more international breaks till March. And that also means you're joined by Matthew this week. Matthew, I hope all is well. How have you been this past week?
3: Uh... <laughs> not been good. Fulham have once again managed to ruin all positivity. That the It wasn't a dull international break from my end, but yeah, Fulham have managed to ruin my weekend once again. So yeah, all good All good on that
0: end. OK, mate. And of course, last but not least is Palace fan Max. Max, how are things with you, mate?
1: Yeah, really good with everything except uh, watching Crystal Palace and, and all things Premier League. But yeah, otherwise, happy to be here.
0: Top man. Right, before we chat all things Premier League, I'll do the social media bits first, I we'll be talking into the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Dan Tracy 1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. Also, if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Audioboom. And also Spotify. It's only taken me 104 episodes, but I finally got this podcast on Spotify. So if that's your platform of choice, you can get it on there also. And the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Right, it's time to go... Live. And where should we go first? I think we need to get the unashamed Tottenham bias out of the way first, if only because they're currently the greatest team in the land and arguably the people's club. With that said, Carl, is it a little too early to start discussing them as champions in waiting?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think obviously, you know, we discussed this last night then, didn't we? That um, it's great to be where we are. For me, you know, I'm not like a lot of my Twitter feed that, you know, can't stop banging on about being top of the league um, because, you know, we're nine games in. I want to put a little bit of kind of just like, okay, hold on, yeah, it's great. It's better to be there than obviously being, you know, down the bottom of the league or mid table looking like your season's just going to peter out. But I just want to kind of, I'd rather us go under the radar and kind of, you know, not build ourselves up and hype ourselves up as already having won the champion, you know, being the champions. I've already seen a Twitter post today saying, oh, Spurs is kit next year. We'll have gold badges on it. Yes, yeah, um, So I, I think we do just need to be a little bit careful and temper this excitement right now because, yes, it's great to be top, but there's, a, you know, there's another 37 games yet to go here so i think we just you know and we know spurs have a tendency to kind of we build ourselves up and then end up making ourselves a laughing stock of london so i think we should just kind of like you know temper it down a little bit that's in yes enjoy the moment but i think there's a lot of football to go um and we'll just need to see where where we finish come the end but i think you know given the way we seem to be playing the form we're in we can definitely think, you know, it would be nice to feel that come the end of the season, you know, we can at least be up there for a top four or even within a title shout. But I think, you know, we've still got a run of games coming up that'll really show us where we are. But we've started off brilliantly with that win. So Matthew,
0: in a week where Pep Guardiola has signed a new two year contract at the Etihad, no sooner has that ink dried that they suffered another Premier League loss. Now, you unleashed the Haaland theory last week and it's one that Michael Richards also picked up on. So do you do you think the penny might
3: be dropping at the club in regards to getting a new forward? Um, I, th- I I definitely think he'll drop on regards to getting a new forward. But I would also, if I was Pep Guardiola, and I, it, it, I'm pretty sure it's been discussed before, and it will be discussed because it seems to be the rotating thing, but he does need to sort that defence out. I don't know if it is going to be a case of having to get that defender and then, you know, still relying on Sergio Aguero or... Or you know, putting a lot more faith in Gabriel Jesus to go forward. But as much as the forwards are a problem, and Alf no, not Alf Inge Harland, I'll make that mistake till the day I die. Um, <laughs> Erling Brown Haaland will be or is the solution to their goal scoring problems. I do think their defence does need an extra, you know, five hundred billion pounds as they seem to spend every summer. They, they're going to need another one of them in as well because the way that. Tottenham were able to carve Man City on, not just for the two goals, but on multiple occasions as well as that. And and we've seen it you know, with other teams do it throughout the season. That does need to be a hell of a concern for Pep Guardiola.
0: Also talking of Michael Richards, Max, I know you picked up on this also, but it seems he's created a new word for City's defence, niativity. Does it work? <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I <laughs> no. think maybe, as I, said, uh, as I said on Twitter, it kind of uh, getting a bit of the festive spirit in early. I'll save you, though, Max, because Matthew has just alluded to my next point, which is City's defence. So this is a continual problem because for all the money they keep spending, and we're talking a lot of £50 million plus defenders, they can't solve this back line. Where is this long-standing issue coming from? It's almost like this is a similar department or a similar issue, shall I say, to when Chelsea buy a string of number nines, well-classed number nines, that go there to almost die in footballing terms. So what is going wrong at City's back line? I'm going to say something pretty controversial, which is that I think City's
1: defence is not that bad at all, and I think they might have already taken the the main steps to solve it. Um, I'm just going to start by saying a, a news story that I really enjoyed seeing uh, in the week was uh, Boris Johnson announcing 169 million of spending on defence, and then someone said that's exactly what Pep Guardiola will be doing after the after the Spurs game as well. Um, but yeah, to be honest, they I think they've met, they've already made the main steps aside. To, to to sign the players that they need. Um, obviously they haven't they haven't got a natural uh, left-footed left back. Zinchenko more of a midfielder winger. Mendy has got kind of a, a lot of a lot of injury troubles and is maybe a little bit inconsistent. So they've resorted to playing João Cancelo there, who's right-footed, obviously more naturally a right back. Um, but he's actually been doing pretty well. He's posting some really good um, attacking numbers, and you know for the moment he's. He's, he's a decent stand-in. And then the rest of the defence, they look pretty solid. Kyle Walker's been basically their best player all season. Um, really consistent. And then at centre-back, I think they've got two really, really good players. They've got Laporte back fit. Now, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether he'll be able to play consistently across the rest of the season because he's obviously had a lot of injury troubles as well. Um, but now they've signed Nathan Ake, who's a very capable backup. You know, he's also capable of playing... On the left side of central defence, he's also capable of playing left back. So he's a a much better backup than the likes of John Stones, for example. Um, Even though Eric Garcia seems to be gone there, have made a big signing in Ruben Diaz, who has generally looked pretty good. Um, Although there was a bit of a mix-up for the Son goal, the first goal, uh, I, I thought City were a little bit unlucky against Spurs, to be honest. I mean, it was a classic Mourinho smash and grab in that, you know, they didn't, really have many chances but the ones they had they took they were super clinical but it wasn't a case of city being completely all over the place and spurs having 20 shots on target and you know hitting the post three times i thought city were generally quite solid and it was just a couple of a couple of errors and maybe uh, some very sharp attacking play from spurs which undid them in the end and you know the, the partnership between laporte and diaz is very untested at the moment but the quality is there for sure And I think it's not going to be long before we start seeing them um, keeping a lot more clean sheets. For me, the problem with City is their blunt attack rather than their defence.
0: Yeah, I think obviously it's not just one root cause. There are just issues all over the shop. And I think that's something that Guardiola will have to identify in these next two years with his new contract. In that period, Carl, we're already seeing silly season in terms of links. Harry Kane being linked as the next name to go to the Etihad. So if we're talking about great number nines or tens or nine and a halfs, what price do you put on Kane in a depressed COVID market, regardless of, you know, fees going down, you could name any price for Kane and he'd be worth it right now?
2: Yeah, uh, to be honest, I don't think there's anyone that can afford him Right now, to be honest, given the fee that I think Levy would, you know, even if he did contemplate selling him, I think the fee that Levy would put out there for him, um, in my opinion, you know, I don't think there's a team that have got that money. Because in all honesty, right now, if we're looking at this season, I think based on this season alone, I think you sit there now and say Kane is probably, um, at the moment, playing the best you know, the best that there is out there. You know, I'd say he's probably having a better season than Messi. He's probably having a better start than Ronaldo. Um, and, and I don't think you'd find many better players in world football. So I don't think you can put a price on that. And, and I don't think there's any club that would be able to match the price that Daniel Levy would put on his head um, at the moment. Because I think you easily be you could easily be talking £300 million, um to prize him away. Um, and I, I can't see it happening. You know, we've I think we've definitely got him for this season. A lot I think will hinge on what happens this season and and where we kind of finish. You know, if we have a really strong season where we maybe finish say third or second and they have really been in with a title shout, you know, maybe picked up a either a domestic trophy or the Europa League, then I think if he sees that there's some possibility that the club could go on under Joe and win something like the title. Um, or Champions League, then I don't think he goes anywhere. If the season kind of peters out um, and we only end up finishing in an Europa League place again, then I think come the summer we could see um, that, that normal you know, situation rear its head where everyone said Kane needs to leave to go and win something. But right now, I think we're safe. And right now, I don't think there's anybody that could afford defeat that would be asked for him.
0: So, Matthew, with the Premier League table being as congested as it is, The positions are indicative of where we currently are. The table's not lying, but City can at least latch onto the fact that the points gap is not insurmountable. Positions, yes, but it shouldn't take too much work to get back to the top end. With that said, are they almost approaching the last of their lives in terms of, you know, title game over?
3: They are because I'm just just looking at the table now. The gap between them and Spurs is now eight points. Um, they do have a game in hand, which uh, I don't know who their opponents will be. It's either going to be Burnley or Aston Villa. I don't know who it is. It's one of them. Um, so you'd imagine they'd win that game in hand. So let's give let's put that to five points. They're, do you? They will obviously make they'll make up that gap against the other teams. But the question is, do they make it up? You know, in the right games? Because you know, we've seen. It's two games in a row now that Spurs have beaten Manchester City. So if it does come down to, you know, when they go to the Etihad, you know, Spurs will show they can, it's not a given thing that they'd be able to beat them. If you go up against, you know, Liverpool, do you trust, you know, Man City to go and beat Liverpool? When they're at full strength this season, you know, if and when players come back, I don't think so. When they go and play Chelsea, I'm not 100% sure they beat them. So they will... Man City will pick up points, you know, when they have to and when, you know, and when they can against the, the smaller opposition teams. But when it comes to the the bigger teams, you know, the games that really decide the season, I don't think it's such a given that it was in previous seasons. Like, you know, you'd expect them to lose oh, a couple of years you know, a couple of years ago they only lost the one game, I think it was, or two games, and it was against like Liverpool and Chelsea or something along those lines. Now though you think all these games, you think, I'm not so sure about that. So I think there is the argument that you know they're not out of the total race yet, but one more one more loss like this to a fellow, you know, to a fellow big team, and you are starting to think it might not be their year. Exactly, that's what
0: I'm thinking. If, if the gap gets bigger against the big rival and they lose what would be a swing point, uh, six points if you will, then I think it might be game over. Not yet, but they are hanging by a thread. Max on Saturday, the most. Controversial decision in a game which wasn't really littered with controversy at all, but there's always one. Of course, it was the goal being ruled out for City? Do you think in the end it was the right decision?
1: Oh, it's tricky. It's tricky. What I definitely think he he kind of uses his his arm and the top of his arm to control the ball, and it just deflects off the top of his arm before it hits his chest. But what was confusing was that it seemed to be the very top of his arm, which, according to the new rules, is not considered handball. And we saw that rule in action uh, for Bamford's offside, Patrick Bamford's offside against Palace, because he was pointing where he wanted the ball, and it was the top of his arm that was offside, because you can now score with the top of your arm. It's it, it's a part of your body that you, that you can score with, which is why it was considered offside for Bamford. So I, I was just really... I was just really surprised to see it being given as a handball, uh, given that you can now score with your top of your arm. And the referee was pointing towards the bottom of his arm, as if he'd hit, as if he'd hit the ball with the bottom of his arm, which would have been handball. But he didn't hit it with the bottom of his arm. So it's a bit, it's a bit, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a bit confusing to see that. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that it was, the rule was interpreted the way it was. It's just a bit confusing for everyone at the moment. And we'd like a lot, of, um, a lot of fans would like clarification on what the rules are and how they're going to be applied. Because it doesn't seem like anyone really knows what's, what's going on, including the referees.
0: Well, this is it. I mean, even watching at home, say if it's a, a rash tackle or something, we all have a frame of reference and you can usually, within a replay or two, go, yep, yeah, that's a red, that's a yellow. Like, you know... You're watching that on Saturday, and even if I try and take away my, my Tottenham hat and look at it as neutral as I can, I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore. So I don't really know if it's a penalty or not. And then, like you say, there's the decision, but then there's a, an action which actually goes against that actual decision. So you just like, you just have to see the lie of the land and go with what it is. And luckily, from a Spurs point of view, we were fortunate, or we had the, the cards fold in our favour this time. But in another week, it could have been a completely different decision. So we are where we are. But we're also, with Spurs being top, and they are because Liverpool beat Leicester. So, Carl, I said last week, put the house on the foxes. So, I'm now homeless. But why were Brendan's men so toothless <laughs> at Anfield?
2: Yeah, you, you, I think you can only assume that maybe the international break has kind of, you know, broken up that momentum. and And that is the shame, isn't it, when these international breaks come around? Because, you know, you can just get yourself into a really good run of form. And then suddenly, you know, everything kind of breaks up. You know, half your squad, and that's saying most of these top sides nowadays lose the majority of their squad. They all go off all over the world. You get, you know, say a week or two weeks where you don't have some football. You all come back. Um, and then you've got to try and see if you can hope that you can get that momentum going straight away again that you had before. And that's the only thing I think I can put it down to. Um, as you say, I, I thought Leicester would give Liverpool more of a game, especially given Liverpool's kind of in- injuries and, and everything that they've had going on at the moment. But they were too You know, it wasn't the same sort of Leicester that we've seen um, week in, week out before. Um, you know, no credit. Liverpool played really well, I thought, but Leicester it just didn't seem. And I can only assume and say they are the sort of side that, unfortunately, you know, that break just come at the wrong moment and it's kind of knocked them out of their stride. But. You know, even said that, always going to Anfield at the moment is a tough game, you know, no matter what. Um, Because even with their injuries, Liverpool is still a good side at the moment. Um, So I think it's just one of them days. Leicester will just think, well, thankfully it's out of the way. We regroup, try and get ourselves together uh, and get the run going again in their next game.
0: So, Matthew, going into the game, you know, in the build-up of the week and all that, it looked like Liverpool were going to be in for trouble because of all their injuries. Their stupendous home record looked like it could be coming to an end. But to their absolute credit,
3: they found another impressive performance
0: when not many people gave them a chance.
3: No, exactly. and I think this just goes to show, uh, I, th- I think there will be an end because I, cause Jürgen Klopp is one of the smarter managers out there and, is, and isn't afraid to sort of bite bite back if it was um, with with the way he talks. So Jurgen Klopp is probably someone who listens to the media and you know, I don't think he listens to every single podcast but he will know the sort of the stories that are going out about, you know all this weakened Liverpool side Oh could it be not so much the passing of the torch sort of thing, but you know, Leicester, this is their chance to prove if they are really a, a top side in the Premier League sort of thing and I imagine he would have been the one to say, listen lads, we're still the team to beat, and even if we do have players injured, let's just go and show the country that we that we are not, you know, bleeping about, so to speak. So even though they were without, you know, Mohamed Salah and and with his issue, even though we're not top strength, we do still have a very good, you know, strength and depth to go to, and you know, Diogo Hota has proved to be a fantastic signing. You know, it's we're not just here to replace Firmino, and that argument. Oh, I can also play. You know, you can also play in place of Salah as well. So I think that would have been a, you know, a strong message to to his Liverpool side, and you know, just to say, you know, we are still the kings, even if we are, even if we are, you know, at somewhat, you know, seventy-five percent strength. Say, we're still the best team in the land, and it's up to you to come and beat us, rather than us just falling over and letting letting the title race carry on.
0: So, Max, it was Johnny Evans' cracking header at the wrong end, which put Liverpool ahead. But it was almost done and dusted by the time Yotta made it two. Now, Matthew's just alluded to the point, but he is becoming a huge asset to Liverpool now. Not just because it's a Firmino either or. It's versatility and especially his performances at Anfield have been different levels so far.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. He's, He's kind of surprised a lot of people because, you know, he was good at Wolves. He was good. He was part of a really potent... Uh, front three last season with Traore and and Jimenez but you could argue that the other two in that trio um, got more attention you, you know Raul Jimenez obviously they're all different players but but Jimenez got a lot of a lot of plaudits for his hold-up play and his finishing and yeah he's just an unbelievable footballer and then Traore there was a lot of hype around him you know there was talk bigger clubs are interested maybe Barcelona are interested in having him back and, and Jota was kind of quietly going about his business really well um, and, and and did pretty well but I mean his stats were never amazing you know he never scored like 15 or 20 or 25 goals um, but clearly Liverpool did their work on him did their homework on him did their scouting and and figured out that there was a really really good player in there I mean he's properly young he's versatile he can play in all the positions and I think he has played left right behind the striker and up front so far Um and basically, last season, they didn't really have the cover Liverpool um, up front. Origi, big drop-off from Firmino. And Shakiri and Minamino are big drop-offs from Salah and, and Mane, respectively. But he's made a really big impact. And I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe he's the only player uh, for Liverpool ever to score in his first four games at Anfield. That's right. Which is a, which is a phen- phenomenal record and fair play to him. And you know what? He's the kind of player that you need um, across the course of a season, because Salah and Mane and Firmino, I think the African nations are this year as well, which might mean um, Salah and Mane are away. Um, and you need that kind of competition. You need that kind of quality backup. And even if you just bring them off the bench and and give them a bit of um and give them a bit of bit of impetus in in a game that they're uh, in the game they're losing or drawing, if he doesn't start, um, having that option is really fantastic. And it's the kind of player that can get you
0: over the line in the title race. So Cole, Bobby Firmino finally got a goal in the end, but I want to talk about technology with his earlier chance. 10 millimetres the difference between a goal and not, but under the letter of the law, it's still no goal. So I had a Liverpool friend saying that there should be some form of margin of error due to the way that technology is being used. But surely that would cause all manner of problems because then you're sort of saying, well, if the margin of error is 50 millimetres and it's 51, we're back to where we are really, aren't we?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think as you say, and anything where we suddenly bring in a case of oh, well, was it? Was it? Then you know we, we'll be in this situation, won't be Where we'll see one given one week, one not given the next week, and then suddenly you know there'll be the conspiracy theories that oh, the top sides are going to get the benefit of the doubt in this situation, and the l- little sides won't. At the end of the day, that technology, you know, Hawkeye technology is there. It, it's worked. You know, it's the one piece of technology that I think we could all say has worked brilliantly well since it's come. I mean, it's only had the one major hiccup at Aston Villa last year when it didn't work, um, and I think you know, it, unfortunately, it's one of them. You won't get. I don't think you'll probably see one as close as that to either being a goal or not being a goal. Um, but I don't think we need to worry with that at the moment. I think if we're going to look at technology and trying to sort something out, then, then let's get hold of VAR and get that done properly. Because for me, Hawkeye, since it's come in, uh, has done the job it wants to. And I don't think any of us can complain about that.
0: Absolutely. GLT at the bottom of the list of problems at the moment. But talking of problems, Matthew, Leicester caused Liverpool one, I think. It was the chance straight after Liverpool's opener. Vardy turning almost provider for Harvey Barnes, but unfortunately, his shot flashed just past the post.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the chances that, he, you know, as much as I say, you know, Liverpool were going to be, you know, probably dominant in this game. That's one of the chances that, you know, Brendan Rodgers will look at his sign If we are going to be, you know, that could that could have been a, you know, a turning point in the game, so to speak. And if we are going to be one of these teams that challenges for the top, you know, throughout the rest of the season, you know, maybe not for the title, but... Given what happened last year, wanted to get back, you know, in the Champions League plated and not fall short again this season. It's those sort of chances and those, you know, what if moments that are going to be the ones that sort of define Leicester's Leicester season. So, as much as it, it, you know, it may have made a difference uh, on Saturday, Sunday, whenever the game was, um, but in future, those that's going to be one of the you know a turning points. Rogers will say, you know, we can't let that sort of opportunity uh, get past us again. So we need to be stick- We need to be sticking those away. Because, you know, whilst, you know, a 3-0 loss might not be, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, a 3-1, we all know that goal difference can play a major part in these things. And that could be you know, one of the things that comes back to haunt them. And Max,
0: what did you make of Jurgen Klopp's comments after the game regarding broadcasting scheduling? He's the latest manager to add fuel to this particular televised fire yeah yeah i
1: wasn't i wasn't sure i agreed with him it's not necessarily um sky and bt the broadcaster's jobs to to look out for to look out for his 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 players um there is there is a sense that that footballers are kind of being over are being overworked and we're seeing a lot more muscle injuries this year um for example um but at the same time um you know the broadcasters have paid a contract. And basically, it's going to be up to the clubs to pay that, to pay that that um, that money back to the broadcasters is the, if the broadcasters don't get the deal that they paid for, which is you know a set amount of games at twelve thirty on a Saturday. And normally, those games are going to be against the uh, are going to be showing the big teams like Liverpool, like Manchester United, and obviously the big clubs all benefit from being in those games because they get. Uh, because they get a, a very decent share of the TV money. I also think it's a little bit hypocritical of Klopp to talk about um, player welfare when he doesn't really rotate his players exactly. and still mainly his... And he still mainly picks all his great players anyway. And someone put that to him and he said, oh, well, you know, we'll have to put loads of youngsters in. I was like, well, it's not really about player welfare then if you're talking about not wanting to put youngsters in because there's a drop-off in performance. If you cared so much about your players, you would put Neko Williams in at right-back or, you know, you would put Simicas in at left-back or Curtis Jones in midfield or whatever. And the stats I've seen actually are really interesting is that, Guardiola and Klopp and people like this often don't even use all three subs. So I'm not sure why they're saying five subs would make a difference. Because I think on five occasions already this season Guardiola hasn't used three subs. So it's not really about tiredness. I think they're just kind of piggybacking on that problem, which is a problem. Um, but I don't think um, I don't think TV is the and, and TV and broadcasters is the right target if you're trying to fix player welfare.
0: Yeah, because if you think there's no leeway at all in terms of dates, times this season, you know, everyone's got this congested schedule because this is where we're at. Now, it's not for me or for anyone to tell you what players to pick, but logically, if you are picking the same 11 to 14 players week in, week out, they are going to get more knackered quicker than a squad of 18, 19. So whether the argument is extended to five subs, that's probably the more logical route. I don't think it's TV times, which is the root cause of the problem. Anyway, let's go back to Saturday because, Carl, Man United have won a second league game in a row. Yes, it's exciting for them. But against West Brom, that was far from convincing. Then again, if you're Ollie and your head's just off the chopping block, you're just taking the points, aren't you?
2: Yeah, definitely at the moment. you know, And again, like as we've said before, haven't we? Oli seems to have this special knack, doesn't he? That just when people start talking about his job, United will go on and run and pick up two or three results. And all of a sudden, you know, you kind of, that talk kind of dies down again for a couple of weeks. Um, as you say, it wasn't pretty. Um, they weren't great, to be honest. Um, but I think, as you say, at the moment, Oli will just be glad. You know, a clean sheet, a win and, you know, move on to next week, and, you know, take those three points. I you know, most United fans weren't happy from what I could see given the performance and, and the lack of, you know, creativity and just the dourness of it. But I think yeah, if you're only gonna Solskjaer at the moment, three points, you walk into the ballroom and say, There you go, we've got a win and a clean sheet. Uh, what more do you want? Um and, and he keeps his job for say another week. Um but, I do think it's funny that he keeps managing to do this. You know, maybe he should just he should just make out that his job's on the line every week and United might walk to the title with thirty eight games and thirty eight wins. Um but they'll need to do a lot better to be honest. They'll come up against a lot stiffer opposition and if they play like that against some of the better sides, then as they've been found out before this season, they won't come away so lucky as they did this weekend.
0: With that said, it could have been a lot different, Matthew, had West Brom been given a penalty at the other end. So, your two pence on that, please.
3: Yeah, it, I just want to talk about it sort of in comparison to another one of the, you know controversial penalty decision earlier in the day. Um, it was Aston Villa and Brighton, which uh, people have been drawing a lot of comparisons to. And I want to say that I've been in favour of VAR. I don't... And, and i don't want to and i don't want to say that you know it, it gets everything right and i know a lot of people have been complaining about the the humans that are using it rather than var itself i think this is one of those times because the one thing that got me during the when i was seeing the replay of the um of the tackle on i i forget i forget who was who's was involved but with the the Solly March incident at Aston at Aston Villa, you can clearly tell that he got the ball first because there's that one angle that they're showing you, from more or less the corner flag, um, at Villa Park at the Holt end, that says right he flicks the ball away before he made contact with the player, so he gets the ball first. For the Man United West Brom one, there's there's only there was only really one angle that they showed. And that one you you couldn't tell whether or not he got the ball first because it was sort of in line, it was right behind. So if he kicks the ball, it's a bit you can't tell because of you know depth of field sort of thing. So a lot of people say, Oh you know, definitely it definitely was the penalty because he doesn't get the ball. I don't think I'm not hundred percent sure on that. Because we didn't see all the angles to get again, it may be that was the case. That no, they didn't they or he got the ball or he didn't get the ball, so Penalty, no penalty. I'm not sure because there was only showed you that one angle. So I didn't get a chance to see, and I don't think you know, the rest of the country got a chance to see whether or not the player made contact with the ball or not. We didn't get a clear, clear view of it. That's 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 just you know my VAR rant for the thing is. I know people have you know, complained about VAR. I think this is one of the times where the humans in charge of it, and at least you know what we can see of it. It wasn't 100. It wasn't 100 clear in that situation.
0: OK, Max, you get the other piece of penalty contention because it seems that West Brom were hard done by at the other end. Sam Johnston's initial save scrubbed off. Fernandez eventually gets the goal, but should it have been scrubbed off in the first place? Well, I'm, I'm glad you've asked me about this because I, I think this was an absolute travesty
1: of justice. I don't want to be too, um, too hyperbolic about this, but I think West Brom were really, really, really hard done by. It. And I was just really disappointed and sad and angry on their behalf. Um, because you know they're, they're a promoted team. Obviously, they're having some troubles with the results, as often happens when you get promoted and you're playing better teams. And you you kind of just want a fair crack at the whip, really. And not only was their penalty a little bit unfairly um, uh, chalked off at the other end. Well, firstly, uh, about five seconds before the furlong handball incident, there was a foul on Conor Gallagher. Definitely should have been given, wasn't given. And um, You know, we've seen it. In this country and in other countries, people are sometimes going back forty, forty-five seconds earlier in the move to see a foul. And about five seconds earlier, Conor Gallagher was was bundled over, and it should have been a free kick. Putting that aside, um, I thought I thought he was really unlucky. Um, basically, according to the new rule, it is a handball, but. Because it was kind of outside his body, but it was it was hit pretty hard at him from pretty close. He obviously wasn't trying to move his hand towards the ball, which is not the case, for example, with Joel Matip and his handball, which was much more of a handball than that. Um, and and yeah, he, he was just kind of turning away, and it hit his hand. It was outside his body, um, so to speak, um, in the in the in the legal <laughs> terminology. But I think he, it was quite unlucky. Now the. Johnston being off his line, according to the rules, they enforce the rules accurately, right? Because the keeper has to have a part of the foot on the line when the penalty taker takes it. And so according to the rules, they enforce that correctly. However, I think it's massively unfair that Bruno Fernandes and Jorginho and whoever can do these little hop, skip and a jump and triple step, you know, triple jump um, stepping run-ups. And and keepers don't know when to dive because if you're going to say, um, that if a keeper has has no foot on the line when the penalty taker takes it and you're going to be ultra harsh on enforcing that rule, which they have been, then you, I think it's also unfair to say, well, you can't give the penalty taker the advantage of being able to, you know, shimmy about um, like Shakira and, and, and the keeper has to move at some point, right? And you're giving the penalty taker an advantage because they'll see which way the keeper moves and they can put it in the other corner. And, you know, 80% of the time that the keeper saves it, they're just going to call it back for a retake anyway. So I'm not saying that the way they enforced the rule was wrong, but I think it's a little bit unfair that Bruno Fernandes can, can, can move about like a, like a snake all over the place um, and kind of encourage the keeper to move. But then the keepers are judged really harshly when they move potentially a little bit early or half a step off their line.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And all it is, you're absolutely right in the sense that the rule has been enforced correctly. There's no issue with that or there's no real issue. It's just the fact that the balance of power has been shifted far too favourably to an attacker in that situation. Yes, we want to see lots of goals, but it's not even really a fair contest now, is it? There's no real jeopardy in a penalty because... Not only if a keeper does save it, like you say, it will just get clawed back, back to the penalty taker again. So
3: that needs to Oi, oi, there's no jeopardy in a penalty. You know you're talking to a Fulham fan right here, yeah, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: we'll get to you in a minute, Matthew. <laughs> hold, hold, your, uh, hold your powder for now because, Carl, I want to talk about West Brom and looking forward because we don't usually do previews, but they've got Sheffield United on Saturday. Is this the final eliminator for the first sack race?
2: I'm not so sure. I don't think Sheffield United will act just yet, to be honest. I think Chris Wilder has probably got a little bit in the bank um, in terms of, you know, given what they did last season. So I think Chris Wilder will probably get a little bit longer to kind of turn it round. Um We've seen with West Brom they won't hang around, haven't we? Before you know it, it, they've had managers that have had them in the playoff positions before, and they've sacked them because they don't feel they've been good enough. So I think if you're if you're Bilic, you're starting to maybe worry and think, well, yeah, you know, if I don't start picking up some points here soon, I might not see it past Christmas. Um, but I think for Sheffield United, I, I don't see them kind of pulling the trigger that early. Um, I think they'll try to give Wilder a bit of time to sort it out. But you are right, you've got. Both both teams here that desperately need to get some points on the board um, and start putting in some better performances. So, like I say, I think West Brom, yes, I think the chairman might be getting, you know, a, a itchy trigger finger. But I think, you know, Wilder's safe at Sheffield United for now.
0: So, Matthew, the Blades were bested by West Ham at the weekends, And we spoke about no Dean Henderson being their primary issue for such poor performance collectively this season. However, only four goals scored. That's going to hamper you massively as well, isn't it?
3: It is, um, you know, as much we want to, we want to put the blame on the defense. That... The thing is, though, this, this, this is Sheffield United. This is what this is what they were last season. I think they only scored. I think they only scored like thirty-nine it's goals th- in thirty-nine. Games. And, yeah, yeah, thirty-nine, so, thirty-nine, wasn't it? Both at uh, both ends. So yeah, exactly. So I mean, it's a bit of a drop off, obviously, but at the same, at the same sense. It's it's what they were last seen, so we shouldn't really be too shocked by this. Obviously, I'm sure Sheffield United fans will be screaming at them because you you had the balance. If you know, we can't you know, we're not gonna score many, but at the same end, we're not gonna concede any we're not gonna concede many. However, now they are conceding many and they're not scoring any. So the balance has gone entirely the other way for him. so they are gonna have to solve those problems. But the thing with Sheffield United is are they're they're not a club that can really afford to go out and buy someone, you know. I can't I can't see their being in a position to slap you know thirty million pounds on whoever a thirty million pound rated forward is these days. I don't know Lucas Moura just for the hell of it. Um, but that's that's a bit harsh on it. But you get you go and said they they're not in a position to invest, so they're going to have to deal with you know either sort that defence out or whoever their forwards are you know McBurney, Sharp, McGoldrick, and Rian Brewster they're going to have to start pulling their socks up and start pulling their weight. Otherwise, Sheffield United are probably not going to rival Derby, but at least rival you know, the, the Watfords and Sudlands of that sort of ilk.
0: Yeah, because I think you're absolutely right in the sense that Sheffield United were in a state of equilibrium last season, weren't they? 39 goals at one end, 39 conceded at the other. Now they are scoring less, conceding more. So they've got two massive problems to fix. And you do wonder if they can only fix one or if any. And if they don't fix both... They might be doomed. But Max, West Ham, they're far from doomed. They continue to be upwardly mobile at the moment. Just as we hinted at last week, with easier fixtures on the horizon or starting now, the scope for more points was there. And they've started that already with a fantastic winning goal by Sebastian Hallet.
3: Yeah, it was a really,
1: really good goal. And I found his, his celebration really really interesting you often get um, players with kind of angry celebrations Wilfred Zaha for example always looks furious as soon as he's um, scored and it's a real release of emotion from him and the kind of anger and frustration he maybe feels on the pitch from bad tackles or whatever he really lets it all out when he when he scores and we saw that from Alea as well because he didn't celebrate at all really he was just kind of walking away smoldering with fury Um, Probably, I imagine, at the. um, I couldn't speak for him, obviously. Probably, I imagine, at the pretty negative press coverage he's got from um, the media and and the fans. And he was obviously a a big, expensive signing, I think 45 million from Eintracht Frankfurt um, last year. And he's maybe felt the pressure of expectation a, a little bit. And it is it is difficult moving into the premier league we've seen that with other players like Joel linton for example Allaire is much better than Joe linton but that's just an example of another player who struggled after coming over um with, with a big with a big, big price tag on his head and Mikhail antonio has been really really good for west ham west ham obviously only play with one striker so understandably antonio has been playing but i don't think Allaire ever played terribly it was just kind of a bit of a, a tendency of fans to write him off quite quickly Um, as a bit of a donkey in inverted commas because he's tall and he went on a a run of not scoring in many games. But I think he's a good footballer and he definitely proved that because it was a super, super finish. And, you know, it's not, it wasn't a lucky, it wasn't a lucky goal. You only score that kind of goal if you're a really, really good player and you've got really good technical skills. And he clearly does. And while Antonio's out, I'm, I'm pleased for him that he's been able to kind of put his mark on a Premier League game like that and show what he's capable of. And, you know, maybe we might get uh, Moyes putting Antonio and Allaire in the same team if he if he keeps us up this form. And just from the perspective of a neutral wanting um, wanting Allaire to do well, because he's obviously struggled with it initially, and a lot of fans have, have got on his back, I'm, I, I was pleased for him.
0: OK, so that defeat for the Blades sees them rooted to the bottom of the table Joining them in the bottom three now are Fulham. So Matthew, we'll get to you in just a moment. But Cole, we spoke about the sack race just a minute ago. Scott Parker's cutting a more and more frustrated figure each week on Match of the Day, isn't he? You feel sorry for him now, but at what point do you blame him or the players? Especially when looking at the third goal they conceded against Everton on Sunday.
2: Yeah, I think, obviously, he's got a hard job on his hands now, hasn't he, Scott, to be honest? You know, I, I like Scott Parker. Um, I just, yeah, like as you say, whether Fulham will suddenly stick with him for this whole season and just say, well, look, listen, even if the worst-case scenario comes, we're going to stick with this guy and see if he can build something or whether they kind of sit there and go, well, actually, we want to stay in this league. And if in the next couple of weeks, they still haven't picked up any points and are probably playing as poorly defensively as they are, like, as you say, Some of the marking for the goals that were conceded, then you kind of wonder whether they'll make the switch and say, look, you know, let's see if we can get someone in that maybe can just save us and give us a chance of fighting relegation off. Um, You don't know unfortunately, as you say, it just doesn't look like it's working. But then there are times where you look and say, when players just switch off and don't follow their marker, um, you know a manager hasn't said to that guy, listen, I don't mind if you switch off and don't follow the guy we give you to mark. Uh, That's not a problem. You know he would have told that player, listen, wherever he goes, you follow him. That's your duty. And if you look at the third goal, you know, the guy just walks into the box unmarked. He hasn't been followed by his midfielder um, and he's there free to head the goal in you the players have to take a large chunk and look at themselves because that is just a simple you know example of a player not doing what he needs to and performing the role that he's in the side to do um it's going to be hard for fulham isn't it it's just whether they've got ambitions to stay this season or build something under scott parker but i get the impression that if they want to switch then you might find big sam is getting you know tapped up and seeing if he fancies coming in to try and do a saving job until uh, the end of the season.
0: Yes, it's all about the firefighters soon, isn't it? Because we're getting to that time of year. And it also, it's a case of, do you get one in first? Because I know Derby have been linked with Big Sam. So if he goes, then you're sort of looking down the list. There's no Moyes, at West Ham. Mark Hughes, he's already been Fulham manager. There's not many options thereafter. So it's a difficult stick or twist for Fulham. But Matthew... We need to talk about full penalties because there's bad luck and then there's no luck and I think you've had a huge portion of the latter at the moment
3: we have and I just want to touch on Carl's point that in the um uh, the full and focus podcast that I do, there have been rude there has been the big Sam talk has officially started no, no. like where do we the the other name that's been brought up for some reason. Nigel Pearson. Ooh. after what he did, after what he did last season of Watson. That's not a bad shout, actually. If we were, I oh, we don't were... say that. Oh, I was, I was like, I'm against Pearson. But okay, but, but <laughs> well... back to the initial. God, that's a horrifying <laughs> image. But anyway, um, the penalties. Yeah, the thing is, it's not just a this season thing. We've had this problem for, for years. We, we, there was the season, 2016-17, uh, where I think we had 13 penalties. And we, I think we missed seven and scored six. It was a horrendous season. And Scott Parker's management of the whole thing has been, has been terrible. You know, Danny Murphy made, no, it was Troy Deeney made comments on Talk Sport the other day. You know, once you get, yeah you know, we're basically going through the team, so now it's it's Alphonse Ariola, the goalkeeper who's going to be next in line, <laughs> whereas I think that you know we need to have an established penalty taker, and we thought we did. Alexander Mitrovic even said during the international break after the whole Lukman thing that I am the number one penalty taker at the club now he did say that right before he missed for Serbia against Scotland, so i don't know if he's had a bit of a confidence you know shattering since that but the fact that he was on the pitch the guy who has been our established penalty taker for the past couple of seasons and didn't take it there's just something not there's something not gone right there either he as i said hasn't got the confidence which is worrying because he's our main striker and the person we're hoping to get 20 goals to keep us up or scott parker has mismanaged it and and is and is going through the side either way it's not looking good and the sooner we get I say the sooner we get it sorted, I, th- I think it may even be sort of too late at this point, even though I think we're only one, uh, two points or one point um, off of safety at this stage. Once Burnley, who I think are above us, once they get their game in hand, if they win that, I don't see us, you know, the fixtures we've got ahead of us. It's Leicester on Monday, then it's Man City, then it's Liverpool. We're going to be fighting for anything. So even if we do get the penalty situation sorted out, it's not really going to make that much of a difference in my mind. And oh, it's, hard to, it's depressing to think about this in November when Christmas is around the corner, but we're already thinking about it's already come to a case of, oh, when this team plays this team, who do we need to win? It's a depressing thought.
0: I find this podcast has become a social experiment and how much you can break someone's spirit, that man being you, Matthew, because it started off relatively chipper in August, September, and just bit by bit, the gloss is coming off week by week, isn't it? I'm just holding out for the internationals and <laughs> to give you some bit of respite. Right. OK, so back to you again, Matthew, because we need to talk kazoo. It seems the magical instrument shows no mercy as our experiment recorded another positive test.
3: It did. Absolutely. And I'm just trying to think. Everton have got leads this weekend. And I've been very much pro-leads uh, this season, think that they're going to get out of it. So for the purposes of this... I shall withhold Kazoo okay. this week. Because I, I want Leeds to do well. I want Leeds to win. And keeping Dominic, Calvert-Lewin quiet will be a good way to go about that. So no Kazoo for Calvert-Lewin this week. OK, but
0: duly noted. Max, talking of positives though, a win for Everton, that will certainly boost their confidence after an indifferent run of results.
1: Yeah, it will, it will uh, boost their confidence, definitely. Can I just say also that I'm a little bit disappointed uh hasn't got the kazoo treatment because he's in my fantasy football team. <laughs> so, so I'll be sure... Oh, no, yeah, he's in mine as well. Yes, this week. he's in mine as well. Bloody hell. Right, yes. Oh,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: But, yeah, the, Everton... Yeah, the, I've got mixed feelings about Everton. The, their defence is, um, is clearly a bit of a problem. And I, I don't want to take anything away from Fulham because uh, the two goals they scored were really... Uh, were were really nicely taken. Um, the, the move leading up to the penalty um, with Loftus Cheek was was really good as well. I'm absolutely baffled, by the way, that Loftus Cheek isn't starting um, because for me he's head and shoulders above the likes of Reed and Lamina who are playing in centre midfield. I know maybe he's a different player to Reed, but I feel like you could definitely get Kearney and Reed and Loftus Cheek in the in the middle of the park, for example. But anyway, uh, back to Everton. Yeah, their the defence was a little bit iffy. Um, obviously, they haven't got um, Seamus Coleman, but I, I don't feel like one right-back should should be the cause of, um, of, of loads of defensive woes and issues and, and everything like that. But on the other hand, in attack, they look really good. Obviously, Richarlison makes a massive difference because he improves Rodriguez, he improves Calvert-Lewin, you know, he improves Dina. A lot of the players that contribute to their attacking play, a lot of the key players um, in their attacking phases... Um, are improved by having Richarlison there. And obviously, he's not a bad player himself either. Um, so, I think they'll, they'll be really pleased to get to get the win over the line, even though they didn't necessarily play amazingly. They look really sharp in attack, um, and that's something they'll be looking to, to continue going forward.
0: So, there was also an element of positivity for Leeds on Sunday. Cole, they didn't ship four goals, but to be honest, they probably should have scored four goals against Arsenal.
2: Yeah, they they really missed a you know a hatful of chances, didn't they? You know, I think the total was something like twenty-four shots. Um, come the end of the game um, and you'd like to think, you know, if you're a side and you have some 25 odd shots during a game, you should really be looking to convert at least one or two of those. So I think Leeds will sit there and go that, you know, given the sending off as well, that is a game they probably will feel, well actually they've probably let that one slip um, and should really have maybe seen that over the line given the dominance and the amount of chances they created. But I think you then also look and say, well, hang on, you know, a point against Arsenal who, you know, uh, one of the you know Premier League's long-staying teams and still regarded as one of the sides that will be up there within the top five or six. So I think a point from there, as you say, clean sheet. I think you take some positives from that and say, OK, now we just need to build on that going forward. Um, and as like you say, that that's a much better performance and one that they'll look to now just kind of build off of in the coming weeks.
0: So, Matthew, a change of personnel saw Nicolas Pepe brought into the Arsenal fold. And after that indiscretion, he'll be on the Emirates naughty step for quite a while now, won't he?
3: He will be. And I know you as Spurs fans will, will have seen it. But the, I think the best part of it, as will be sort of any Arsenal moment this season, will be the fallout on AFTV <laughs> as a result of it. Claude, I I think he went a little bit too far by saying he should never play for Arsenal ever again. But at the same time, it was pretty funny. Um yeah, that is that is one of the things. I and mean, at least Mikel Arteta came out and, you know, not so much hammered in, uh, hammered him afterwards, but did sort of come out and say uh, in public, anyway, that you know it was a disgrace. You can't you can't really do that, rather than sort of trying to hide back and say, oh, in the heat of the moment, these sort of thing happen. I applaud him for you know, actually showing something and saying this is not acceptable. We won't be having this. So you do wonder whether or not this is something that's going to you know drag on. Um, you know, throughout you know, after his three-game ban, is there's you no know, some sort of further punishment that's going to go on um, if there's heavy fines or anything because he really did let the side let side down there, and yeah, you you, you just can't be doing that even if regard regardless of the situation. But it would, but it will be interesting to see what the fallout is you know after this. So, Max,
0: we spoke about Aubameyang last week and him being the squarest peg in the roundest hole. Now, Sunday. He fit into the jigsaw quite neatly. Unfortunately for him, the same personal outcome was exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Um, however, uh, you know, you
1: you'd need to play him. Um, you need to play him up front in the centre. And they took that one step um, on at the weekend when they played, and, and definitely they'll have to continue doing that going forward. However, he does also seem to have lost confidence, maybe as a result of having not scored in a while, maybe as a result of not uh, having played out of position a little bit, and maybe also as a result of um, Pepe obviously being sent off for, for a portion of the match. It is weird because he was he was so sharp and on form last season, but the two positions on the pitch where you'd say confidence are are completely critical to their position, um, is goalkeeper and striker, um, you know, and, and we've seen it with Christian Benteke because the Benteke of the first season he signed for Palace and he scored 17 goals in all competitions and looked every bit Belgium's number one striker ahead of Lukaku, um, he looked every bit the player that Liverpool bought, you know, that that smashed in goals for Aston Villa, he was really colossal, you know, he was a real force of nature and now he's an absolute shadow of of the player he once was it's like chalk and cheese they're completely different players um and i wouldn't say that obama young has had a benteke level decline but he's definitely lacking confidence and when you're a striker um so much of how you play is about confidence it's you know the confidence to take shots on early or to to round the keeper or making the right decisions and he's obviously lost a little bit of confidence at the moment but it didn't help the fact that um it didn't help the fact that Pepe got sent off, obviously, and that's a real stain on, on, on him. After he's done so, so little to to to, to show Arteta that he's worthy of a starting place, and then he, he's finally given a start, and he and he reacts like that. And I don't want to kind of encourage a pile on because he has come out and said, "Yeah, look, it wasn't acceptable." Arteta's also said that, so you know, let's everyone move on now. But it was really a, a poor decision, and I wonder if Arteta will think about. Um, think hard about giving him another chance again.
0: OK, so we've got five minutes to go. It's the quick fire round to finish. Carl, I'll start with you. Chelsea, a routine win at Newcastle. But had they really had their shooting boots on at St James's Park, that could have been a far heavier defeat for the Magpies.
2: Yeah, and it should have been, you know. I mean, I don't really know what Newcastle are doing right now other than just trying to bore everyone to the <laughs> Premier League. Um, but as you rightly say, if Chelsea on another day and Timo Werner had his shooting boots on, that could have been a lot worse for Newcastle and probably should have been. But I guess Chelsea still be happy that they come away from a, you know, what is considered sometimes a difficult place to go with all three points and they can keep their momentum going.
0: Matthew, Southampton missed the chance to go third last night. Theo Walcott opened the scoring for the Saints. Had he been a bit more ruthless after that goal, though, that should made all the difference. And three points for Southampton.
3: Yeah, and I think much that I I talked about with Leicester earlier and their missed chances, this could really come back to buy them. I think Southampton could very well be in the same boat, you know, those two points. Especially because you imagine Wolves and Southampton are going to be in that same bracket as... Teams fighting out for that seventh place, which could be a Europa League spot, depending on how things work out. That could very well be the difference come the end of the season. But at least he's managed to get some form, uh, some form going. Because I do really like Theo Walker players. So hopefully, you no, know, his, his miss won't hurt him too much. And the goal he scored, which is a very nice finish, will you know, provide him some little bit of a boost uh, heading throughout the season.
0: And Max, with Palace, I've only seen three minutes of the game. So in a nutshell, was it no zahar, no hope on Monday night? Uh, Yes,
1: (laughs) it was. It was really frustrating. Um, And the positive about Palace playing on a Monday is that they can't ruin your weekend. The (laughs) negative, obviously, is that they ruin the rest of your week. (laughs) That's a very good point. uh, It was. It was an absolutely. um, It was hugely, hugely frustrating to watch. Um, Obviously, we shot ourselves in the foot, and it was windy at Turf Moor. But we basically made a defensive howler to gift them a goal. And against any team in the league, probably the last team you want to gift an early goal is Burnley because they just hunker down, batten down, batten down the hatches, 11 men behind the ball, 30 seconds for every throw-in, 30 seconds for every goal kick, diving about all over the place, which kind of contrasts with their Sean Dyche Hardman, you know, northern image. Um, but, yeah, it was hugely frustrating. And obviously, you can tell I'm, I'm not over it yet.
0: Absolutely not. And, Carl, very quickly, Brighton have they finally got a win that their performances as of late have deserved?
2: Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think, you know, Brighton have been one of the you know great sides to watch so far this season um, and not always got the results their footballers deserve. So, I think that win um, was one that they were long overdue. And, you know, quite frankly, I I was quite pleased for them. And that is a good win away at Aston Villa this season. So, they'll be really pleased with that. Shame about the sending off for Lamptey, which I felt was a little bit harsh, given the tackle that was made that got him the red card. But Brighton will be very pleased. And that is a good win on the road.
0: And Matthew, you've got about 60 seconds for this one. Should Liverpool be having influence over VAR-appointed referees David Coop was meant to be the VAR for Liverpool Leicester. Now we all know what he did, and didn't do in the Merseyside derby. Surely, though, clubs shouldn't be having that kind of influence and saying, actually, no, he shouldn't be on the panel this time round. Can you answer that in sixty seconds? If you can't, we'll leave it till next week.
3: No, no, I can. I think I think that's terrible. I didn't know that it was the um, I didn't know that it was the club that was pushing this. I thought it was just a sort of fan outcry, sort of thing. Either way, no, I don't think it should. I think. You, can, you can, I know that there are some arguments, you know, that, you know, back in the days, Howard Webb was always in favour of Man United and, and all that sort of stuff. We get that. But you have to put your faith in officials to, you know, not favour one team or the other, or if they make a mistake like that, to, to be allowed to, to get over again. I mean, Graham Pold, he made that decision, that bad error in the World Cup, but he was still able to carry on refereeing. No, Whoever it was with the three yellow cards, yeah. maybe Mark Elsie, you know who I mean. Yeah. But they should be allowed, even if they make a mistake, to carry on their job. There shouldn't be any form of pressure in, in that situation. And if they make a mistake, don't, there shouldn't be any backlash from any, either the fans or the clubs themselves.
0: Is the correct answer. And that's a perfect way to wrap up this show. Because we've hit full time. So I just need to do the admin, which is as simple as thanking my three great guests this week. So thanks first to Max for another top performance this afternoon. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure as always. Cheers, mate. Thank you to Matthew. Thanks for your time as always. Yeah, not a problem. Lovely stuff. And Cole, the captain's band is going nowhere. I hope you'll join me next Tuesday.
2: Definitely enjoyed this uh, chat. So uh, always good and always looking forward to next week.
0: Fantastic. Cheers, guys. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye.